0: Sarah, I wanted to ask you, since you're talking about corporate influence, um, about the Democratic Party. Uh, <laughs> so, you're obviously running as an insurgent candidate, um, and the Democratic establishment is pretty hostile to people, uh, like people <laughs> to the left of the party, right? Yeah. Um, or to, at least to the establishment of the party. So, I guess, first, have you, how has the reception, I guess, uh, uh, by the sort of establishment Democrats, how has it been? Um, have, you know, how have they, how they reacted to you, I should say, um, and then also, um, you know, there are like the people like me who, you know, I go back and forth about the Democratic Party because on the one hand, you know, there are candidates like Alexandria Ocasio Cortez, there are candidates like you, um, and other insurgent candidates who've who've actually like won primaries across the country that give me some hope, but then also the party is completely you know, pretty much funded by many of the same corporate interests as Republicans. They continue to be a pro-war party for mm-hmm. the most part. So, you know, what's your take on the Democratic Party in the current state it's in? Do you think it's a reformable party? Do you think, I mean, obviously you must think that you can somehow work within it in some capacity, but how how do you think that that can play out?
1: So... I right now uh, I'll start with the first question, how they've received me. (laughs) Um, At first it was very tribal. It was very circle the wagons. It was very, she's out of, she's coming out of nowhere at a left field. We've never, we don't know who she is. We're not going to trust her. Um, But I I made a point to reach out to people and to try and work with members of the democratic party that actually were excited about my candidacy. Um, There were a few that were, that got pretty excited about it. And um, I know that, leading into the primary, a lot of people were were concerned. They were like, oh, no, what if we lose the district to a Republican? It's a D plus 21 district that is literally impossible. But they were concerned about it. And I respect the fact that they were concerned about it. And now that we've left the primary, it's been a really interesting shift. Um, People that are establishment Democrats are a lot more open to criticizing the incumbent now, and they feel a lot more comfortable speaking their piece. And I've gotten a ton of phone calls from people asking about uh, my platform, if they can meet with me, they want to get coffee, they want to get to know more about me. I've been invited back to some of the legislative districts that didn't endorse me, which I expected in the primary, but that said, you know, we're open to changing our endorsements now that it's the general. Um, and so it's been kind of this weird shift where people are like, we don't know if we trust you, but we agree with you that it's time for change and we like your policies and we we like your integrity. And so I'm like, OK, cool. Now we're getting somewhere. <laughs> <Now> we're getting- <laughs> yes, all right. Um, so that's been an interesting shift. But I mean, as far as the party itself, I think that it, the party is going through some growing pains. Um, I think that it is they are conquerable growing pains if leadership would start listening to the next generation of Democrats that just want to have the baton handed over to them. Uh, We're not running as insurgent candidates because we hate the Democratic Party. We're running because this is a marathon and it's time to pass the baton to the next generation of leaders. Um, We just, we don't want to destroy the Democratic Party. We want to change it. We want to make it the party of the working people. We want to make it the party that puts people first and rejects the influence of corporations. Um, To see the shift in the Democratic party in the DNC, they just uh, they said they reversed their ban on accepting fossil fuel money. That's the antithesis of what a majority of Americans want right now. And it just speaks to how out of touch the leadership is. It speaks to how out of touch a lot of these representatives are. And it's frustrating because it can be reformed. It is not. I I have to have hope. Um, I, I can't believe that it's completely lost and it's a completely a completely Negated cause Um, I think that you know the heart is in the right place For for a lot of Democrats and and Democratic Voters the hearts in the right place for a lot of State Democrats Uh, we just have To bring that heart and that that Belief and that integrity into a federal level And into a national level and I I Think we have the ability to do that Um, I have been a lifelong Democrat And I if you look at Washington State Democratic Party platform and my platform And DSA's platform they're really Not far off there's maybe one or Two issues that we don't agree on on completely. Um, but it's try and demonstrate to people that the Democratic Party, the, at least the members of it, at least the people that, that are involved in it, they want it to be better. They want it to be stronger. They want it to be more people focused. They want it to be the party that really, truly works for people and really puts people first. And I think that we have the real opportunity to harvest that belief and that drive of the people within the Democratic Party and change it into being the party that we know it can be and the party it always should have been.
2: Well, I think it's so important that you um, yeah, mentioned the, the issue of uh, the DNC um, with the, the, the fossil fuel money um, mm-hmm. and and how they basically decided to uh, go back on the pledge in, in the last week. Uh, and the fact that, um, I mean, I want to get your response to this. Is this something that has been... Uh, pervasive and uh, a source of tension between people who vote and and are part of the Democratic base. Um, Ever since uh, the 2016 election, there's been a lot of of misdirection and I think um, outright lying about what it means when you're critical of somebody for uh, taking corporate money. And and, uh, we've seen people who um, you know, claim that it's, it's sexist to say that you're opposed to people taking corporate money. We've seen people say that it's, it can be racist to say that you're opposed <laughs> to Democrats that accept corporate money. I just would like to hear, um, your reaction to this idea. Cause a lot of people who are incumbents, um, and, and, and rely on this money for their campaigns, um, even though you know, right now we'll, I'll leave it in the realm of the climate. I mean, we've got some really staggering impacts of climate change or climate disruption on display, especially in California with the wildfires. Um, and it's really, I think, frightening. But at the same time, you've got Democrats being willing to still cozy up with the employer packs of these fossil fuel companies. And uh, so, what do you? What's your reaction to? um this 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 thing where they won't admit that this money is um co-opting them or or changing their politics
1: so I actually have this with my incumbent. He thinks that corporate money doesn't affect his votes. And it, obviously it does. But he, I, I honestly think he truly believes that. And um, the fact of the matter is, is it's not just people's votes that you have to look at. That's the thing that I keep trying to explain. It's the policies that they don't put forward. It's the policies that they wait until the last minute to co-sponsor. It's the policies that they back they back off of voting for once they hit the floor. Uh, it's the people that they associate with outside of, of sessions in Congress. Um, It's the people that they let in through their office doors. Um, It's the people that they listen to right before a vote. It's so much more than just a yes or no vote that that influence is so much more pervasive. Um, But the big thing I keep telling people, too, is, look, the war industry is giving this person money and they're certainly not giving this person money to end war. (laughs) And that's the, the thing that people look at is they look at who who owns you. They look at who pays your paycheck. They look at who funds your campaigns. And when we're out there talking about not taking corporate money, that's actually the thing that has managed to get us in a ton of doors um, that stop people from closing their doors for doors to us. It's what's endeared people to our campaign. It's what's made people trust us. Um, I'm not in this to get rich. And I made that very clear. I, I'm in this because I believe that we have a moral fight here. We have a fight for moral clarity. We have an obligation to push for legislation that working people want. Um, you, you can actually even point out the influence of corporate money in in real, true, factual figures, which is insane. Um, and it's it's not a matter of race or gender or misogyny or phobia. It, it really is demonstrable through math. Um, 80% of the legislation that working people are supportive of and want to hit the floor never sees the floor with bipartisan support. But 30%, or I'm sorry, um, the there's... Uh, I'm sorry, I got my figures wrong. So 30% of the legislation that working people want sees the floor and actually gets there. 80% 80% of the legislation that the rich and corporations and the 1% want gets to the floor with bipartisan support. And so if you don't think that's an, that's an example and that's demonstrable proof of the influence of corporate money, I mean, 30% of the legislation working people want gets to the floor with bipartisan support? Are you kidding me? What are our representatives doing? They're supposed to be representing us, and they're not pushing for the legislation that we want. But when it comes to the wealthy and the 1%, 80% of that legislation gets to the floor with bipartisan support. That's the influence of corporate money in our legislation. It's right there. It's demonstrable. There's proof for it. There's evidence of it. This is not a matter of opinion. This is a matter of fact. And that's what's really frustrating for people, uh, for people like me to, to, to deal with is because we're trying to show that there really is an issue with it. There really is a moral component that goes to it because when you take money from somebody, whether you realize it or not, whether it's conscious or unconscious, that money is going to affect how you think. That money is going to affect how you think about that industry. That money is going to affect the legislation that you're critical of. Oh, they gave me the maximum $10,000. Uh, I don't really want to make them mad. What if they don't give me that money again? So I'm just going to not co-sponsor this piece of legislation. It's an unconscious response that we have. But when you're unto- when you're unfettered to corporations, when you don't have corporate overlords, when you don't have to worry about saying the wrong thing and having all your funding pulled, that's when you get to truly legislate from a place of meaning and a place of morality and a place of ethics. That's where you really Really get the opportunity to legislate for working people. That's where you get the opportunity to to introduce laws that are going to make positive impacts in people's lives without having to worrying where your next paycheck is going to come from. And it's it's really frustrating to me now, especially because I signed on to the off fossil fuels pledge, which I, I don't take money from fossil fuels industry or any industry. So it was a really easy pledge to sign. Um, but they they have this pledge, and I signed it back in uh, summer, early summer of two thousand seventeen. I can't remember the exact month, but I know it was early summer. Um, and my incumbent. In the general announced that he signed it too. And what's extra annoying to me is, yes, he signed it, but he signed it after he took all the fossil fuel money. So he took all the money and then he's like, I pledge not to take their money now. And to me, it's just so empty and pandering. And unless he gives that money back, we're going to see it in its effect on his legislation. We're already seeing it. He hasn't co-sponsored any of the three major bills to fight climate change. Uh, he pledged to, to sponsor the to co-sponsor every piece of legislation on the people's platform from last year. And he still hasn't co-sponsored all of them. These pledges mean nothing because he's not willing to quite literally put his money where his mouth is and push back against the fossil fuel industry which is frustrating and sad but at the same time they manage to do these mental gymnastics where they say oh it doesn't affect my vote when it clearly does and it it drives me absolutely up a wall because people see it the working people see it they know that it's happening they know that th- that it, their re- their representatives votes are being affected they're telling them their votes are being affected but the representatives just they ostrich they shove their head in the sand and they're like no 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 it's not affecting me. It's not affecting me. And people are tired of it. We're ready for a new era of politics that's not beholden to any corporation, that's not beholden to any industry or lobbyist or special interest group that just wants to focus on doing what government is supposed to do, which is protecting the people and giving them every equitable opportunity to succeed.
2: I just have a couple more issues I'd like to quickly touch upon before we wrap. Um, I believe my colleague um, Rania has to drop off. Um, but, uh, we thank her for joining us if she hasn't dropped off already. Um, uh, so my, uh, so on this issue, I think it's really important. Uh, I recall that back at the DNC platform committee, um, uh, Dr. Cornell West was a surrogate for Bernie Sanders. You know, he laid it out there. He was really frustrated because Bill McKibben, who runs the 350.org foundation, uh, organization and is, uh, uh Foremost climate activist, was also a, sur- a surrogate and was uh, on there as a delegate representing Bernie Sanders on the platform committee, he was putting forward all these measures to address the climate. And and, and uh, he wants to uh, ban fracking. And there's mm-hmm. this whole block of Democrats that were opposing him. And uh, b- basically, Dr. Cornel West laid it out and said, you know, he was he was recognizing that We've, we've got a lot of neoliberal rationalizations for corporate power that are being thrown around here. And he mm-hmm. didn't think that Democrats really recognize the urgency and, and what's at stake and how mm-hmm. devastating um, the, the situation is. So I, I wanted to give you a chance to talk about um, uh, uh, the part of your platform on environmental violence and, and also the issue of the fact that, okay, Democrats in rhetoric and also in theory they do not deny the science of climate change like republicans they do not pretend mm-hmm. like it does not exist so that makes them demonstrably better i do believe that you know a, a democrat would be far far better than a, do- a donald trump administration because they don't deny the reality of climate change we've seen it play out mm-hmm. with the epa and other organizations, the Interior Department, with Ryan Zinke selling off parts of the the federal uh, public lands to oil companies or energy companies, it's a huge problem. But but then they don't they, they want all of the above energy, or they want to appease all parts of of industry. Um, they have a problem with workers who I believe have been um, uh, regular donors to their campaigns. So they depend upon them for their elections they don't want those people to be out of jobs so they're concerned Mm -hmm. and they and they pander to them so i just talk about the urgency of, of of the climate and navigating these politics
1: Sure, I'm happy to. And in all honesty, the way that I look at it is if you're a Democrat who says you believe in climate science and you're not co-sponsored onto any of the three bills that are in the House right now to fight back against climate change, you are arguably worse than a Republican that believes it doesn't exist. That's what I think. You recognize it. You believe the science, but you're not going to do anything about it. That, to me, makes you an arguably worse Democrat and an arguably worse Republican. Um, Knowing that something is wrong and having the ability to do something to fix it and refusing to act is i mean it's unspeakable to me it's just as bad um you know what is it the it's it's inaction that causes that causes suffering and it's ridiculous um but i mean climate change is is absolutely urgent climate change should be at the forefront of every conversation we hear on the floor of the house um because we only have one planet and we can wor- we can- we can get everything else taken care of later but the planet has a has a finite timeline there is the sea levels are rising the glaciers are melting um we don't really have time to mess around and and wait on these things on things like climate change so in th- one of the biggest parts of my platform is a new green deal and I think that that's incredibly important for a lot of reasons, because a new a new green deal encompasses a lot of things. Uh, I want to remove the subsidies that we give to the oil industry and the coal industry. And I want to put those into green energy because green energy is the way the rest of the world is going. It is the future. It is the it is the morally right choice to make in this climate. Uh, no pun intended. But um, the other thing that I want to do is, I, I also believe that by investing in infrastructure, that's part of this new Green Deal. It's more than just green energy, it's uh, reducing the amount of people that are being transported by cars. It's reducing our reliance on fossil fuels in a lot of ways. Electromagnetic rail is incredibly powerful and incredibly possible. Uh, and it's something that we really need to be giving more subsidies to and putting more research into because that's the way of the future. That's the way we're going to get from coast to coast in the future, I believe. Uh, but I mean, climate change is it's something. Something that's happening that's not just going to stop affecting us if we pass a single law. It's something that's going to affect generations to come. Um, every every teenager I talk to, every high school kid I sit and talk to, their number one concern is the climate, because at the end of the day, they're the ones that are going to have to worry about it the most. So if we have the opportunity right now to elect people into Congress who want to push for a new green deal, who want to push to get us off fossil fuels in a real tangible way and not just talk about it, we have an obligation to do so. That's what we need to push for is a conversation. Congress that that centers that climate change battle, that centers that climate change fight, and puts the future of those kids first, that puts the future of this planet first, that puts the future of the world before we put the future of our our pocketbooks. And, I mean, with... Climate change is such a deep, pervasive issue, and it ties into absolutely everything that we do. It's important that we protect the planet as much as we possibly can. It's important that we push to protect, to get ourselves off of fossil fuel. And we hear this lie repeated all the time, right? You you said it yourself, the Democratic Party is worried about taking people's jobs. And there is a study done, uh, there have been multiple studies done, actually, that demonstrate for every one job that coal creates, green energy creates four, So, if you really want to talk about climate change in regards to jobs and not getting off fossil fuels because of jobs, if someone ever says, Oh, we don't want to take work away from people, that's why we're going to stay on coal, that person does not know anything about green energy and refuses to learn. And that person is wrong. Um, If we really wanted to create jobs and we really wanted to facilitate these good, high paying jobs, we'd be investing in green energy because that's where the work is and that's where the future is. And climate change as a front and center platform piece is really important to me because it's the thing that's going to affect my children. It's the thing that's going to affect their children's children. Uh, It's something that has a very finite timeline that requires urgency. And I appreciate the 100 by 50 year, uh, the 100 by 50 bill that Pramila Paul put forward to put, get us 100% off fossil fuels in 50 years. Um, but there have been multiple studies that show we can do it in as little as six. We just have to remove the subsidies and do heavy investments in green energy. And I think if we can do it in a shorter period than 50 years, then we should. We have to, because we can't wait anymore. We can't wait another five decades to fix our planet problems. We can't wait to have that bill overturned by the fossil fuel industry uh, and their lackeys and the representatives that they purchase. We have to be putting in representatives that recognize the urgency, that recognize the importance of fighting back against climate change, and aren't afraid to put forward bold legislation that gets it done in ten years instead of fifty years.
2: Uh, and then uh, uh, we—I didn't want to forget this one because it's at the top of your uh, platform, uh, your issues page. It doesn't really get talked about most of, the t- most of the time whenever you see candidates, but you do have disability rights is the number two issue. And again, I believe that everything that you've done is deliberate. So um, why, did you, why did you put that up there? And one thing that you have on your page specifically that is staggering to me is the notion or, or the fact that 80% of people with disabilities would not have jobs. That seems uh, really excessive and unjust. Mm-hmm.
1: Absolutely. I mean, it's disability rights are civil rights. And we talk about this all the time. We talk about social justice and we talk about civil justice and the the disabled community usually gets left out of this discussion but they need to be brought into this discussion most people with disabilities just want to work they want to live normal lives they just want to be productive members of society and we've hamstrung them left and right from from doing that and we haven't given them equitable opportunity and this is a civil rights issue this is a this is a problem of denying people something this is a problem of denying them a good quality of life because of a condition that they have no no control over Uh, i just had a friend who lost her son he 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 suffered from a rare form of dwarfism and he he passed away and it's it's watching her fight and watching her struggle i really got personally affected by this idea that dis- that disability rights are civil rights. Um, she spent years on the phone roundabout trying to get housing so that her kid could go up and down the stairs. And these are things that you and I don't have to think about. These are things that most people don't ever consider. But watching her fight for for months to get a van so that her her kid could go play at the park. These are just simple qualities of human life that that people that struggle with disabilities are being denied and that they have to have someone fight tooth and nail for. But when we push to give them every equitable opportunity, we're, we're pushing a civil rights issue here. We're pushing an issue of right and wrong here. And giving people equitable opportunity extends beyond just uh, race, religion and sexuality. It extends to ability as well. And not a lot of people talk about it in those terms. Not a lot of people think about it in those terms. And I think it's time that we change the conversation around disability rights and we look at it more of a civil rights and equitable and equitability issue.
2: All right, and then uh, as we as we wrap up and conclude, I'm going to give you a chance to say anything in closing that, that you might like, um, talk about where people could go to support your campaign. Um, and I'll just, uh, as we put a button on this, uh, uh, say, you know, uh, there was a big to-do um, uh, a week or two ago. When they had a round of primaries, everyone seemed to be celebrating that uh, candidates didn't do very well in those, can- in those elections, that, that we didn't uh, see 100% of insurgent candidates come out and win, particularly in the, uh, so-called heartland states. But uh, then the next round of primaries, um, after, after you um, had your primary, uh, there was a lot of success. There was success in Minnesota in um, various other states um, where you saw people advancing. I believe now there's uh, 23 people like yourself who were endorsed by Justice Democrats that are proceeding onward. So maybe as we mm-hmm. conclude here, you want to talk about this moment and, and what gives you hope.
1: Of course, I'm happy to talk about it. So, the thing I've said for the longest time is this is a marathon, this is not a sprint. And progressive values do exist in these areas in the Midwest. People do love this stuff. They do want this stuff. When you talk to them about issues, they do respond to it. But sometimes it's not about winning, sometimes it's about starting the conversation. And sometimes it's about shifting the Overton window. Sometimes it's about it's about changing the tone of these discussions so people can have them. And I think that in that regard, we were hugely successful. We crossed into communities that had been forgotten and ignored by the Democratic Party for so long. And we took, what, 30, 40 percent of the vote in some of these areas in areas where the Democratic Party has neglected people and left them out of the conversation or or abandoned these these rural areas, abandoned the southeast. They've abandoned the Midwestern belt. Um, They they felt forgotten but we went out there and we did it and we were there and present and in the communities and listening to them and we changed the conversation we brought these values to their doorsteps and we talked about real issues that they're affected by in a way that connects with them and resonates with them and that conversation we might not have seen it result in a 100% victory today but i think 2020 we're going to see that resonate we're going to see that come out more and more over the next coming years um I'm a big fan of conversation, and I think that it's really important that we bring these ideas to areas that think that that they don't need them. And like Nancy Pelosi says, the, the Midwest isn't ready for progressivism. Uh, I mean, 4,000 people at a rally in Kansas proved or otherwise. And I think that areas like the Midwest are tired of being told by people that have never been there or never lived there what they do and do not want or need. But we showed them there are candidates in their districts that that are hearing them and that are listening to them. And we're slowly giving them the ability to have feedback faith in progressive candidates in grassroots campaigns. And I think that this was really about, about breaking down the wall first. This was really about breaking down that barrier that we've set up, this partisan gridlock that we've set up where, oh, they're not super blue, therefore they're not worth going there. We went into deep red areas. We took a risk and we knew that that not coming out successful was going to be part of that risk. But we also knew that coming out successful was not necessarily the the only way to win. Sometimes the way to win is by changing the entire stage. And I mean, we shifted conversations. We changed minds. We brought attention to these areas that haven't seen coverage in decades. And we gave people a voice. We gave people a platform. And they're going to remember that in 2020. And I think 2020 is going to be an enormous year for progressive candidates because we're showing that we're in this. We're scrappy. We're doing it. We're, we're going into places that are being rejected and forgotten over and over again. And we're telling these people, we see you. We're here for you. We want to represent you. We want to give you a better quality of life. We are here for you. And we want to link arms and join together and be champions for each other. And I think that it might not have been 100% successful this time. But if you're only measuring success in terms of who was victorious and who wasn't victorious, that's a really narrow scope for the idea of what success means. And that's a really narrow scope for what the term of victory is. Victory is not always winning. And I think that it's really important to remember that. But that's what gives me hope, is these conversations are happening. these This attention is being given to these states that have been left out of the conversation. It's giving them the ability to pull up a chair and join us at our table. And I think that is an incredibly powerful thing. And to say that's not a victory is just to completely dismiss those people once again and that work that those progressive candidates did. So that's what gives me hope. Um, but I mean, you know, that's what I'm doing here. I'm I'm trying to bring a progressive fight to Washington. And for, if people want to know more about me, my website is votesarahsmith.com. Um, if you want to donate, we made it super simple. votesarahsmith.com slash donate. If you want to volunteer or phone bank, it's votesarahsmith.com slash volunteer. votesarahsmith.com slash call. We've tried to make it as easy to navigate as humanly possible. But, you know, I I believe that we have an obligation to fight for what's right. I believe that we have an obligation to fight for moral clarity. I believe that we can have a government that works for people. We don't just have to be cynical and sit back and say, oh, my vote doesn't matter. Uh, Every single vote matters. Every voice matters. And taking back that voice in Congress is incredibly important right now more than ever. So the piece of advice I'd give to people out there and the thing I just want to tell people out there right now is if you are someone that believes in all these values and you're thinking about running for something and you're not sure you can do it, you can do it. Trust me. Um, Pick up and run and just sign your name up and get out there and start meeting folks in your community. Every single office matters. There is no such thing as an office that doesn't matter. So if you want to be water commissioner in your county, go for it. Run. That's an important position. If you want to be on school board, that's incredible. Run take that position. Uh, You want to run for state Senate? Do it. Pick up your bags. Get out there. Meet people. You will get volunteers. The people will get behind you. Um, But the the biggest thing I really want to say even more than that is if you are running for office, don't worry about feeling like you have to fit in a box. Everybody does that. We all fall into this trap of feeling like we have to fit into a box. And the fact is that you really don't. You can run as your authentic self. You can run as somebody that has authentic values and authentic positions. You can run as somebody that's speaking truth to power, that's being honest, that's running with integrity, that's running as exactly who you say you are. And that can win. And that's a powerful message right now to send to the DNC, to send to the establishment. That's an incredibly powerful thing to bring into the political stage. And I think America is ready and the world is ready. And so that's why I want to run. That's why I want to encourage other people to run. Um, I want people to run who feel like they're ready to make a difference and who feel like they're ready to stand up and be champions for working people, whether that's Congress or whether that's school board. Every position is important. Every person is important. Every voice is important. All of us matter. So never be afraid to be your authentic self and run for exactly the office that you feel most drawn to. But whatever you do, pick up if you're thinking about it and run.
2: Uh, and I, 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 uh, in addition to your website, you also are on Twitter at Sarah Smith 2018, and uh, people can follow developments with your campaign there as well. We really thank you for giving us so much of your time today to of talk course. about your campaign. Uh, and uh, as as I sign off here, uh, we wish you the best with the campaign. We'll continue to follow it. And um, we wish you luck with the general election.
1: Thank you so much. I really appreciate your time. Thank you.
2: Right.
1: Bye.